This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Adrian Randolph. Dr. Randolph is Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine and the Director of the Immunobiology and Critical Illness Laboratory at the Boston Children's Hospital. She's also a Professor of Anesthesia and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Adrian, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, it's been four years since you and I last spoke about sepsis, and um, you're on the Council for the International Sepsis Forum. Uh, you're an advisor to the Global Sepsis Alliance, which sponsors the World Sepsis Day every September 13th. And um, it's probably no more important time than to speak with you again today to find out where we are in 2017 um, and 2018 um, in thinking about sepsis in children. Could we begin by this? Could I ask you, um, what do we know about the burden of sepsis around the world? And what do we know in particular about the burden of sepsis in children? Yes, um, there has been some, some uh, publications since we last talked um, that have tried to get a more accurate estimate of sepsis worldwide. And one comes from a systematic review of all of the literature that, uh, that was available. Um, and the estimate, and, but it was only in high-income hospitalized uh, patients, and there they saw a overall estimate of over 30 million cases annually, 19 million severe cases, and over 5 million pe people dying of sepsis every year. Um, now that is a gross underestimate because they didn't include low-income countries where sepsis is even more prevalent. And that was because the data were not available. So the burden of sepsis is tremendous. And in the intensive care unit, the SPROUT, which is the um, Sepsis Prevalence Outcomes and Therapies Study um, that was led by Scott Weiss, Julie Fitzgerald, and colleagues through the POLICI Network, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network, um, published that um, there, the overall prevalence of sepsis in the PICU this was a point prevalence study where they got data from over 126 ICUs across the world, was 8%. So 8% um, of the children in these ICUs had met sepsis criteria. Most of them had organ failure at recognition. And the overall mortality was 25%. So a quarter of those patients died during their hospitalization. And another 17% of the survivors develop moderate disability or worse. So the burden of sepsis in hospitalized patients is tremendous, not counting those patients who don't even get to the hospital or areas where care isn't available. It's, it's huge. Well, I think we all understand that uh, sepsis has been recognized uh, all the way back to uh, Greek medicine and, and before. But what you just said is, is remarkable that 25% of children who are hospitalized will die, let alone those who never get to the hospital. Is there a renewed emphasis um, on sepsis? Uh, is there 
a, 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 this global effort. Could you tell us about this? Yes, so this is truly an amazing time because um, just recently, the World Health Organization has recognized sepsis as a, as a global priority. Um, this was work of the Global Sepsis Alliance. Um, Conrad Reinhardt and some of his colleagues really led a lot of this work um, and had Germany um, propose to the World um, Health Organization that sepsis become a major focus um, and that we and that the um, that they proposed a resolution that the Director General of the World Health Organization take specific actions to reduce the burden of sepsis through improved prevention, diagnosis, and management of sepsis. So they want to decrease delayed treatment for sepsis because that's been proven over and over that outcomes are poor when treatment is delayed. You don't want to recognize sepsis when it's too late to really reverse things. You want to recognize it quickly and intervene very fast. And so what they want is to really push early recognition, have people asking, you know, could this be sepsis? And previously, the World Health Organization is always focused on primary prevention, where, you know, these are very important. And in fact, it will save the most lives, you know, clean water, sanita you know, sanitation, immunization, proper nutrition. Um, identifying patients with immune deficiencies and and that's been you know had a huge impact on especially pneumonia one of the most common causes of sepsis and diarrhea diarrheal diseases worldwide but now they're really focusing in on that secondary prevention of death really preventing the progression of infection to sepsis and septic shock identifying severe sepsis um, going and treating it quickly with antibiotics, fluids, that you're gonna save a lot of lives by recognizing this um, in, the, in um, patients and triaging patients to whatever level of intensive care interventions, level interventions are, are available in that community. Dr. Randolph, uh, one of the struggles with sepsis for me is that it's not a, a, a physiologic or a pathologic entities such as a ventricular septal defect or evident pathology like acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's a, it's a series of things. It's a construct. And I have a hard time keeping up with what it is. Um, could, you, could you update us on what, what's the current definition of sepsis? How, we, how should we think about it? If we're to use the word more frequently, what precisely does it mean? Yes, that, and that's an excellent question, Jeff. And it's um, very timely because just in 2016, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, for adults, they published new definitions for sepsis called sepsis-3. And it's really important that everyone be aware of these new definitions and what it means. Um, now, we don't, we don't have pediatric definitions yet, but these changing adult definitions also changes how we see sepsis in children, it, it can't not impact our sepsis definitions in children, which are also um, in the future going to change, although how is unclear. So first, they define sepsis as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. That was really important. Um, it's important because the prior definition was 
You have a patient who has systemic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, um, which was defined by having two of four criteria, tachycardia, tachypnea, alteration in white blood count, and fever or hypothermia. And in general, they, no one's ever been happy with SIRS, um, but SIRS with suspicion or confirmation of infection equaled sepsis, right? In the old definition. In the old definition. But SIRS is a very commonly found in hospitalized patients, and infection is often suspected with SIRS, and a lot of those patients do fine. And what they really wanted was to identify the sicker patients who would die or go to the ICU, who would really need intervention. And have so that's why they decided organ dysfunction is going to define um, sepsis, life-threatening organ dysfunction be caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, which means now the definition means that you're focusing on how do you define organ dysfunction, right? So the reason they chose this is because even a modest level of organ dysfunction portended in this big data set, they had data sets from multiple huge organizations, hundreds of thousands of adult patients in the hospital. Um, even a modest level of organ dysfunction portended you know, it, with infection, a 10% hospital mortality, at least in these data sets. To define organ dysfunction, they used a score that's been around for a, a long time that's well validated. It, there may not, it may not be the perfect score for organ dysfunction, but it's well validated and it's been proven time and time again that it, it correlates with outcome called the SOFA score. It used to be called the sepsis organ failure assessment, but now it's the sequential organ failure assessment or SOFA score, and it can be used over time. That's the other benefit of it. And so the organ dysfunction for patients in the ICU is defined as a change, acute change in your total SOFA score of greater than or equal to two points compared to the baseline. So you would assume if somebody, you know, was previously, um, didn't have any organ dysfunction, their SOFA score um, would be zero. Right, um, so the SOFA score has um, looks at respiration, the PF ratio, coagulation, the platelet count, um, liver function, bilirubin, um, cardiovascular function, starting off with hypotension and then escalating doses of vasopressors. So if your your score, for example, is two, if you're on dopamine less than five if you're um, on dopamine from five to 15, or a, a bit of norepi or epinephrine, your score's three. And your score's highest if you're on high levels of epinephrine or norepinephrine or dopamine over 15. And then it has a, uses the Glasgow Coma Scale um, to, um, uh, as evidence of uh, cognitive dysfunction, neurologic um, organ dysfunction. And um, a Glasgow of 15 is normal, and that gives you a score of zero. A Glasgow coma scale of less than six gives you a score of four. Um, and if you're 10 to 12, you're in a score of two. And cognitive um, dysfunction alteration of mental status is well known to be one of the signs that somebody has overwhelming infection, um, the body's response to infection. And then it uses uh, renal dysfunction, urine output and creatinine, as well as the final uh, organ dysfunction. So the SOFA score looks at all of those organ dysfunctions and comes up with an overall score. And if you have a change of greater than or equal to two points in any of those, 
and infection, you now have a have sepsis. So those are um, how it's defined. Um, now, that's too complicated for somebody on the ward, and you got to send labs, and there's a delay, etc. Um, so, for pa people outside of the ICU, they recommend using this Q SOFA score, which is this, you know, shortened version of the SOFA score that they wanted something easy to use at the bedside. For patients in the ICU, um, the discrimination of the SOFA score was better. But that doesn't mean you can't use the QSOFA score initially while you're waiting for these labs to come back. Um, but the um, QSOFA score really just looks at three things. Alteration in mental status, systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 100 um, millimeters of mercury, or respiratory rate greater than or equal to 22 uh, breaths per minute. So if they have any of those um, things or, or those, those um, elements, they are now have the QSOFA is triggered that this patient has evidence of organ dysfunction and, um, you know, they require more attention. And what is, and so in these trigger tools or early intervention, the, the idea is that somebody out on the ward would now recognize, you know, here's somebody who I'm suspecting may have, you, you know, is all of a sudden changing their mental status, is breathing fast, and my blood pressure is getting a little bit soft. You know, let's, um, you know, think sepsis, get more um, support here, call for an ICU evaluation, start, you know, doing a workup, start getting more um, data about what are these other organ failures, start intervening. Do you need to start or change antibiotics? Do you need to give this patient fluids? So what they're trying to do is really get somebody, you know, very early recognition using simplified um, criteria with this QSOFA. Now, um, you know, the, the QSOFA is, um, you know, one of the things that hasn't been as prospectively validated, but they validated it in these huge, huge databases. And by using these criteria, they were able to pick off that group of patients who either went to the ICU or died with a pretty good discrimination. Um, so that's why they came up with these parameters. Are they perfect? No. Are there patients who don't meet these parameters that you should still think is sepsis? You shouldn't, it's not a rule out. What it's trying to do is get you to think earlier of patients that might have sepsis and, and decide, you know, is this, is there evidence that this patient, you know, uh, or is my suspicion high enough that I need to treat this as suspected sepsis or rule it out and intervene early? The other thing that they redefined was septic shock. So septic shock um, was this construct of sepsis, as you mentioned, it's a clinical construct with persisting hypotension. So it wasn't just that they were hypotensive, you gave them some fluids and um, their hypotension resolved. It's persistent hypotension. They have to have vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial pressure over 65 millimeters of mercury. The, our lactate um, bump, greater than two, which um, that's millimoles per liter or 18 milligrams per deciliter, um, which is a level that in a lot of different um, studies has been shown to be um, associated with worse outcomes, sort of that um, threshold. Um, despite giving them adequate volume resuscitation. So that their level is of lactate is two, 
they have to have those two things. And with those criteria, mortality is in excess of 40%. You know, it's a bit more um, specific of a diagnosis. There's patients who you and I would think, you know, that is septic shock, the, you know, blood pressures, you know, very soft, we're using some vasopressors, you know, but um, they, you know, this is a definition that, you know, you it is going to pick off those patients who have really high mortality. Now, you or I might say, well, Adrian, I care if the mortality is 10%, 8%, 5%, you know, I don't want five out of 100 patients, you know, so why pick such a high threshold of mortality? Wouldn't you want to, you know, pick a lower threshold and be more sensitive. And in general, I think in pediatrics, we are more um, sensitive than, you know, focus on sensitivity and early intervention than specificity. And these criteria do need to be prospectively validated. They came out of these big, big databases from retrospective. And there's now, there are now studies prospectively validating them. And there may also be other things that trigger you, um, to bring the kid to the ICU, for example, you know, an immune compromised patient with a lactate bumping and a soft blood pressure, you may have a lower threshold than a patient who doesn't have any prior history of anything and looks pretty well. Um, so, you know, you have to use your clinical judgment with these, but in general, that is the new definition of septic shock and the new definition of sepsis in adult patients. Adrian, uh, that's an incredibly clear explanation of something I find difficult to follow, even when I read it. Um, but where are we on the pediatric definitions, um, and why didn't those change when the adult definitions changed uh, a year or so ago? That's a very good question, um, Jeff. And you know, as you know, infection is the number one you know cause of death worldwide in children under five and in the rest of the pediatric populations it's you know very one of the top causes of death so infection and most of it is sepsis is is causing the death um, almost all of it um, and pediatrics wasn't included in part because you know they base these definitions using these huge data sets of adult patients, hospitalized adult patients. Um, and the pediatric data sets were not available with the same um, type of criteria to be able to uh, make these same estimations. Um, we, you know, as you know, uh, pediatric medicine is, although it is the most common cause of death in children, luckily most children are healthy. Where, where there's many, many more adult hospitals and adult hospital databases. And some of these came from the University of Pittsburgh, um, some from large health maintenance organizations, et cetera. You, it's just really hard to get the numbers there to make these same type of estimates. So we still have the, the same definitions right now for children. Um, the other issue is that where do we want to be? How specific do we want to be? You know, in general, we've been taught in pediatrics that, you know, there's really sort of a zero tolerance for missing any cases of sepsis on the ward. If, if a patient is, has delayed care on the ward, you know, who ends up having sepsis and going to the ICU and having um, morbidity or mortality, um, you know, it's heavily reviewed. And 
um, do everything we can to prevent it. So if we move our bar over to becoming more specific and decreasing the number of you know, overcalls that come for just monitoring, um, we're going to miss some cases. So how do we want to change our definitions? Do we really want to use some of these same adult parameters? For example, the alteration in mental status. As you know, most, a lot of our patients are, you know, the average age is three years old in the Sprout study that I mentioned at the beginning of the patients in the ICU with sepsis. It's hard to, you know, estimate the, um, you know, cognitive status in children two years and under, sometimes in alteration of mental status um, to the same extent you can in adult patients. Um, Measurement of blood pressure as well is it's, you have this one cutoff for adults. We have multiple cutoffs for every single age, right? And there's still a bit of controversy about what is nor low normal. A baby with bronchiolitis, technically they may meet criteria for sepsis have if they have fever, elevated white count, tachypnea, etc. But you and I are not so as worried about that patient necessarily. Um, a fast breathing patient with our baby with RSV bronchiolitis who otherwise looks okay. Um, so tachypnea is really a nonspecific, you know, sign in especially young children. On the other hand, you have a 15 year old sitting there with a, you know, very tachypnic, now all of a sudden not talking to you normally, may, um, speaking gibberish and soft blood pressure, those adult uh, definitions seem very relevant and that patient needs quick attention. I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this, where you practice, when clinically diagnosing patients, do you use the 2005 pediatric consensus definitions for sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock as published by Goldstein and colleagues in pediatric critical care medicine? We're back now with Dr. Adrian Randolph. So it's really hard because we have this big age range and this huge developmental spectrum and we go all the way down to neonates um, to come up with criteria as quickly as they did for adult um, patients. So we're still stuck with that inflammation, SIRS, although in our definition to be more specific, we've all said they had to have either fever or alteration in white blood count. And then the second thing would be, um, you know, suspicion or evidence of infection. So we're back with the same sepsis definition that they used in the adult patients. We still use that term severe sepsis, although in general when people are talking about severe sepsis, they're talking about, they, they use the term sepsis when they really mean severe sepsis because most of the sepsis we see in the ICU has organ failure. Now, that was the argument of the adults. When people are saying the word sepsis, they really mean severe sepsis. You know, they don't mean just infection with inflammation. So the current definition of um, severe sepsis means that you have either some type of organ dysfunction. So similar to the adults, we had organ dysfunction, either cardiovascular or severe respiratory dysfunction with, with hypoxia or two or more other um, organ dysfunctions. Um, which we defined in the previous um, sepsis definition. And then septic shock, however, in children's always been defined a bit differently because children 
tend to present later with decompensated septic shock and they can compensate for a long time because they have very healthy hearts getting more and more tachycardic and um, blood pressure can be fairly stable and then all of a sudden they crash. So we've always tried to promote early recognition of that patient who may have compensated septic shock. They have this metabolic acidosis, they have um, poor perfusion, um, they may have um, decreased urine output, prolonged capillary refill time, um, maybe a temperature gap, their extremities are really cold compared to their core. Um, so in our prior definitions of shock, we said you could have two of those or more and meet septic shock criteria. Or you could also have arterial lactate greater than two times the upper limit of normal for age. Um, somebody also could have a decreased blood pressure um, that was, you know, without needing vasopressors because you wanted to identify this before you had, you got um, need for vasopressors. Um, or if you, of course, were on vasoactive drugs, it was pretty apparent that they were in septic shock um, as long as they had appropriate volume resuscitation. So anyways, those are our definitions still, although there's increasing data about lactate and that same lactate cutoff of two or higher um, may be a decent um, biomarker for children as well of um, identifying these patients who may do worse, especially those who have vasopressors plus that or even other signs of shock plus a uh, elevated lactate. So we really need to have more epidemiologic studies. Um, and now that people are majoring lactate more commonly um, in the intensive care unit in patients with sepsis or um, just in general with ICU patients who have now had a change in status, sometimes the lactate will be a screening tool. Um, we'll get more data from these administrative data sets where people have you know, measured it in thousands of patients. And of course, prospective studies are very useful as well, but you're not gonna get those you know, hundreds of thousands of patients you get in adult medicine from these big data sets. Once again, let's ask our viewers a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. Where you practice, do you use lactate as a screening tool for sepsis in pediatric patients? If so, how frequently do you monitor serum lactate levels? We're back now with Dr. Randolph. Could we take this a little further? Um, I recall the PLOD score as a, as a uh, categorization scheme for organ dysfunction. Um, is that still relevant? Um, and if it's not relevant, why not? And, and what, how should we be thinking about organ dysfunction and how we categorize it? And that's an, an excellent question, um, Jeff. And the um, Pediatric Critical Care Branch of the National Institute of Ch Child Health and um, Human Development was, had a whole consensus meeting just on organ dysfunction. And Pediatric Critical Care Medicine has an entire supplement um, publishing all the articles um, about multiple organ dysfunction syndrome mods in children and talking about this same issue. What is the best way to measure it? How, you know, how important is it? Um, can it be used as an outcome measure? New or progressive mods. It's definitely extremely important in sepsis, but it's important in other um, areas, you know, other 
ICU syndromes um, as well, and uh, you know, patients with cardiovascular disease mods is is also an issue. So there is going to be a huge amount of investigation on organ failure um, in the near future because there's a request for proposals and money's available set aside just to study it in children from the critical illness branch of um, NICHD. Um, and there's also a, a the, the CAPCORN network, the Collaborative um, Pediatric Critical Care Research Network has been doing a big um, phenotype study for sepsis phenotypes. And there's been some recent publications looking at specific phenotypes in sepsis that portend worse outcome and also may merit different type of intervention. So one is immunoparalysis related organ dysfunction. So immunoparalysis has been defined um, based upon um, mostly laboratory parameters of somebody who may have profound lymphopenia long-term in the ICU, or if you take their blood and you incubate it with lipopolysaccharide, which is a, a component of the bacterial cell wall, which if you took a healthy person's white blood cells and incubated it with that, it, the cytokine response would be enormous. It would be like a huge response because um, we're we are trained to respond to that with a um, as invasion. But if you take somebody who's been in the ICU for three days or more, and you um, take their blood and they um, don't respond to that, and their cytokine um, response, especially of tumor necrosis factor, is less than. 200 is sort of the, the cutoff there um, that multiple studies have shown. Those patients get nosocomial infections. Those patients may be at risk of dying um, and they have a very long ICU stay. So, and that phenotype, immunoparalysis related multi-organ dysfunction um, is potentially treatable with things like um, GMCSF, granulocyte macrophage um, colony stimulating factor. There's been studies of that and other types of interventions that can redirect the immune system to being more responsive. And we also need to follow up how long are those patients immune suppressed? Because, you know, as you and I know, there's a certain fraction of our ICU patients, you discharge them and then they come back in with another infection, you know. So is this setting these patients who they survived the first ICU stay up for a, you know, readmission and a secondary infection later on even? Um, another phenotype that they've been working on is this thrombocytopenia associated multiple organ dysfunction um, syndrome. And then finally, macrophage activation syndrome, which is you and I know is, a, you know, a terrible um, complication to have. and um, associated with high ferritin levels, um, hard to differentiate between um, hemophagic acidic lymphohistiocytosis, HLH, um, and, um, but treatable with different interventions. So by focusing on these different um, pathways, these different phenotypes or subclasses, whatever terminology, endotypes, there's all these different terms, um, once you identify that, it it puts you down a different treatment pathway that hopefully may improve the patient's outcome. So these, this is a whole nother line of research that is ongoing and very, very important in multiple organ dysfunction in children. And because sepsis 
which I think in pediatrics as well, although we don't have the, the right definition, you know, if we say it's severe sepsis, which is sepsis plus organ dysfunction, um, in general, that's what we're talking about when we talk about sepsis. That, you know, the patient gets into the intensive care unit because something's failing or really just not working well, or, or that portends future organ failure. You know, not just inflammation plus, you know, um, infection. It's really organ dysfunction that is the focus of our uh, work in the ICU, is recovery from it and preventing further organ dysfunction. Adrian, that's a wonderful summary. And we're going to pause here now, and this is the end of part one on an important talk about sepsis. And because this concept is so important uh, for all that we do in taking care of children, we're going to have a part two, which will be shown um, on Open Pediatrics uh, soon. So Adrian uh, Randolph, Dr. Adrian Randolph, uh, thank you very much, um, and we look forward to part two. Thank you, Jeff. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.